Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. This season, we are bringing you 27, the most perfect album. Hopefully you know the drill by now, but we have put together a series of songs by a whole bunch of different musicians inspired by the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Thus far, we have done 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15. Today, we're going to keep going nonlinear. We're going to leapfrog ahead, but also double back. We'll hear the liner notes first, then the songs. These two amendments, all right, enough, are of a very particular breed. You know, in the taxonomy of the 27 amendments, there are the ones that are the sort of the big ones, the, the soaring, principled freedom of speech, you know, those kind of amendments. And then you have the wonky ones, the procedural ones that are almost like engineering drawings, like, OK, we've got this house. It needs a structural fix. So here's how you do it. You put this thing against this thing. You bolt this to that. And then it, maybe it'll work. They're very kind of practical. I actually find those kind of amendments to be the most interesting. Today we have two of those, starting with... 16th Amendment. Income tax. 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 The 16th Amendment is probably not one of the ones that you know off the top of your head. More perfect producers, Sarakari. But... If you live in the United States and you're bringing home a paycheck... Well, it's that time of year again. Coming up, tax day. Tax season. It's definitely a part of your life. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. You probably also know that... Nobody wants to pay taxes. I don't like the IRS. What, what don't you like about that? They take our money. It's basically American tradition to complain about paying taxes. We spend at least six billion man hours dealing with taxes in the United States. A 2016 poll showed that Vladimir Putin and O.J. Simpson are more popular than the IRS. A new survey finds Americans would rather clean bathrooms at Chipotle than repair their taxes. Yikes. So we love to complain about taxes. And yet, and here's the puzzle. If you look at the rate at which we pay them... The United States has a really high rate of compliance compared to other countries. Somewhere between 80 and 85 percent of all taxes that the IRS estimates should have been paid are actually paid by individuals and corporations. That's James Alm. Chair of the Department of Economics, Tulane University. And before him, Jim Hines. Professor of Economics and Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. What they're both talking about is sometimes called the compliance rate. How good are we at paying the taxes that we're supposed to pay? And America scores unusually well. Again, about five out of every six dollars of taxes that the IRS believes should be paid in taxes are actually paid in taxes. And both of them told me that this crazy high number has puzzled economists for a really long time. It just shouldn't be as high as it is. Just to put this in perspective, In recent years, the United States has ranked seventh in the world when it comes to literacy rates, 21st when it comes to the strength of our democracy, and 31st when it comes to life expectancy. 
But somehow... In most international surveys, the United States is among the top three countries in the world in uh, compliance rate with taxes. And economists don't know how to explain this. They literally call it a tax compliance puzzle. And that puzzle gets even deeper if you look at the number of people that the IRS actually goes after every year. What percentage of people do you think um, the IRS audits? 15? Uh, 30? If I had to take a gander, I would have to say like 50%? 60 blessed? About 60% maybe? I'd say maybe 70%-ish. <laughs> okay, okay. Spoiler alert. That's off by like 69.5%. What if I told you that that number is actually half of a percent? Damn. Wow. Half a percent? Wow. How do you feel about that? I mean, I don't know what to feel. I, I just thought it would be, be a lot higher. For the last several decades, the IRS's audit rate has been steadily going down. Back in the 60s, the, the overall audit rate was more than 5%. The IRS blames big cuts. Since 2010, the agency's budget has shrunk by a billion dollars. It also has 17,000 fewer employees. So really, all signs are pointing towards... Rationally speaking, no one should pay any taxes. Your chances of getting caught are extremely small. So you should, you should pay zero. That's Vanessa Williamson, fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. But that's not what people do. And the question is, why? Why do people pay? Now, let's set aside for a second the fact that a lot of taxes get taken out by employers. There are still a lot of cases where people have to voluntarily declare their income and they do it. And why? Why do they do it when the chances of getting caught seem so low? One answer could be that they don't know that the chances are so low and they're scared because the IRS works really hard to make them scared. They use the media, frankly, as part of their device for effective tax enforcement. Their message that they want to transmit to people is, if you don't comply properly, we're going to make you real sorry about it. They try to get that message across in a lot of different ways. There are high-profile prosecutions. Paul Manafort was found guilty on eight counts of financial crimes, say mostly tax evasion. His former campaign chairman Paul Manafort is on. Lauren Hill reported to a federal prison in Connecticut on Monday. Wesley Snipes. The star of the Blade trilogy and Passenger 57. Went to prison. Was sentenced to three years in prison for failing to file tax returns. But I'm sure it was not lost on the IRS that if you have a famous actor go to prison, that will help, you know, uh, get people's attention. Leona Helmsley. The self-appointed hotel queen. Somebody from my era, you know, a very wealthy uh, socialite in New York, married to Harry Helmsley, who owned a lot of fancy hotels. She was known in the press as the queen of mean. I mean, it was the perfect villainous for the IRS. The Helmsleys were indicted for not paying their taxes. And while Harry did not have to face charges because of his health... Leona did. I am not going to jail. I've done nothing wrong. They had her arrested on April 14th in an era when half the country did their taxes on the evening of April 14th. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, yeah. So fear, like carefully cultivated fear, might be one piece of the answer here. But it doesn't seem to me to be the whole story. Hi there. 
You waiting for somebody to play chess with? Because when I went out to talk to people, I heard a few boogeyman stories for sure. But mainly what I heard was that people felt like the taxes that they were paying were going towards something. Everybody had that one thing in their mind that they were thinking of. I mean, uh, like federal welfare programs, like uh, like food stamps, um, like. housing programs, and etc. Education, um, I suppose, like public infrastructure, everything. Uh, Another part of tax compliance is what's called tax morale, and that's wrapped up in our sense, our civic sense, that paying taxes is the right thing to do. Every year, the IRS commissions a study, essentially asking people why. Why do they pay? And last year, 95% of those people said, it's every American civic duty. And that's a bipartisan view. That paying taxes is the cost of citizenship. If you pay taxes, you deserve to be represented, right? And so you see that rhetoric at the founding. You see that rhetoric in the women's suffrage movement. Uh, You actually see it in the civil rights movement as well. It's an idea that's as old as American democracy itself. You ask people about taxes, and they talk to you about politics, right? They talk to you about contributing to the people they see as us. Pay your taxes, it's only right. Contributing to the things that we have to do together as a society. And if you're not putting your fair share into it, it's just really not very fair to anybody else who is. And as evidence that they're part of the community and therefore deserve to be represented. The system doesn't work if, you know, You don't put a little something in to get a little something out. Pay your taxes. And the ex-post, you know, 100 years later on the 16th Amendment, has got to be pretty favorable. I mean, try to imagine our world without income taxes. The kind of government that you would have is not the kind of government you have right now. That's Sarah Kari with a liner note for the 16th Amendment. The song on the album comes from a Chicago, Illinois band called Post Animal. Here it is. If you want to hear the rest of this song, the rest of any of the songs on the album, go to themostperfectalbum.org. Thank you to Post Animal and all the bands that contributed. Again, themostperfectalbum.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect Season 3. We'll continue with uh, one more amendment after the break. This is More Perfect, Most Perfect Album, Season 3. I'm Jad Abumrad. Uh, we had just heard a song from Post Animal. Before that, liner notes for the 16th Amendment. We're going to jump forward now six spots to number 22. Another seemingly wonky one, but actually kind of cool. Kelly Prime brings us the liner notes for this one. The 22nd Amendment isn't a big one. Honestly, 
not even a medium one. After we got our right to speech, our right to bear arms, after we abolished slavery, defined citizenship, and made sure men, women, and people of color all got the right to vote, it kind of feels like a lull falls over the Constitution. Right? Uh-oh. Wrong! In 2018, suddenly this unassuming little amendment, number 22, starts getting really interesting. The most dramatic political change in China in decades. And it all started back in February with news from China. China's ruling Communist Party proposed Sunday to remove term limits on the office of president. Giving President Xi Jinping the right to remain in office indefinitely. Indefinitely. To stay in office indefinitely. The almost 3,000 delegates had been told the amendments were needed because the challenges China faces require a strong leader and a united party. So China has had a two-term limit on the office of president for over three decades. And this year, under President Xi Jinping, they scrapped it. Not long after... Trump responded. Yeah, John is great, and she is a great gentleman. He's now president for life. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday. He suggested it was something we should consider. This is Jillian Metzger, professor of law at Columbia Law School. I remember people freaked out like it was one of those. I mean, for a day, a day or two. But, you know, there was. (laughs) And then they remember the 22nd. (laughs) Yeah. 22nd Amendment. Two term limit on presidency. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. And no person who has held the office. (laughs) And then they remember the 22nd. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what what surprised. The 22nd Amendment says no. Uh, No presidents for life. Two terms, eight years, max. I wonder if you can tell me how long have we had the 22nd Amendment? Well, we've had the 22nd Amendment since 1951. So that means that the two-term limit is actually younger than Donald Trump. Is that right? (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) We didn't have any term limits on the presidency for 163 years. For most of U.S. history, we didn't need it. But right now, a wind is blowing in America, a kingly wind. And coming in on that wind are a lot of basic questions about what kind of country we want to have. Let me tell you about two other times when that same wind has blown. The first? Let's go back to the beginning. Was it a time when America was choosing its very first president? George motherfucking Washington. Yeah, so George Washington, by the time that he became president was arguably the most famous person in the Western world. This is Denver Brunsman. I'm a history professor at George Washington University. We do have to keep in mind that the model of the executive at the time was the monarchy. This was right after the revolution. We had just won a war against Britain for our independence. But as clear as it was what we didn't want, it was pretty unclear what exactly our presidency should look like. Up to that point, I mean, going all the way back to ancient times, you know, people like Caesar and Oliver Cromwell, uh, there was a pattern of, of strong men leading armies to victory and then staying on. So that was the basic playbook. And then in walks G-dubs. He was about six two and a half. 
tall, athletic. In his younger years, he was handsome, high cheekbones, auburn hair. He had a certain way about him that today we might almost call aloof. People admired him for being somewhat above others. In other words, this guy walked, talked, and glowed like a king. And Americans kind of default started treating him like one. Uh, The guys at the Constitutional Convention, they gave him the power of the veto, the power to declare war, the power to pardon. In term limits? No way. If anything, I think there was more of a sense, as Hamilton had argued at the convention, that that should be a lifetime office. So George Washington gets elected. He spends one year, two years, four years, suddenly eight years in office. And a lot of people thought that he would just keep serving until he died. But George Washington kind of struggled with that question. Like, on the one hand, America is a democracy. And in a democracy, we go with what we the people want. Seemingly, what we the people wanted was for him to stay on. On the other hand, he's just one guy with flaws. Yeah, so Washington resisted uh, the the office of the king in different ways. And and he wrote a great letter to an English historian, a woman named Catherine Macaulay Graham. And Washington remarked to her that I walk on untrodden ground. Basically, that everything I do is a precedent. Should he stay or should he go? He had a sense that however he answered that question, it was going to reverberate forward in time. And so, in the wee hours of the morning, September 19th, 1796, George Washington publishes his farewell address. He had it published in a Philadelphia newspaper, and he rode back to Mount Vernon. Back to Virginia. On the exact same day. I imagine him riding back to Mount Vernon and and seeing people picking up the newspaper that day. It appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce to a more distinct expression of the public voice, that I should now appraise you of the resolution I have formed to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. If something went viral in the 18th century, this was it. Uh, Originally, just one newspaper had the farewell address. It was called the American Daily Advertiser. But very soon, it got reprinted in many other newspapers. It's almost hard to overstate how surprising this would be because in, in all of Western history, it had almost never happened before that someone willingly gave up their power. Washington would die three years later. He would have died in the middle of his third term. And so the message, I think, would have been clear that This was potentially an office for life. The way I like to imagine it is that by stepping down, George Washington just barely avoids getting swept away in this kingly wind that had been blowing through the country. And with that one action, he forestalls a fate that stays suspended above us for 136 years. Until... Was there a president... Like, a president in particular that changed that? FDR. It's 1932. And the nation is in desperate economic shape. On October 24th, there was a massive wave of selling. On October 29th, Black Tuesday, the bottom dropped out and the market crashed. It's the Great Depression. 
jobs, savings, and homes were wiped out. Thousands and thousands of banks started failing. Farmers went bankrupt. Americans were literally starving. But then? Franklin Delano Roosevelt rolls in, and he instantly takes charge. He had an incredible command over the media. Francis Buckley, professor at George Mason University. His fireside chats. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. We didn't have television. My friend, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. But he had this incredible ability to communicate directly with the American people through the radio. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be. By speaking directly to the nation during its darkest time, he conveyed the sense that we were strong enough to get out of the depression. He calmed our fears. And in exchange, Congress, the American people, gave him unprecedented power. He transformed the federal government, took control of the economy, established huge new social welfare programs, and Americans elected FDR for four consecutive terms as president. And then, in 1945, in the middle of his fourth term, he dies. And you could say at this point, the country wakes up from a collective dream. The Depression has largely passed. We'd weathered Pearl Harbor, most of World War II, and suddenly we're at war with ourselves, fighting about how much power a president should have. Wartime is one thing, but for God's sakes, let's return to the convention and let's make it a constitutional amendment. 22nd Amendment. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. And no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of president more than once. That means two terms, you're out. Right, right, exactly. On one hand, it does seem kind of undemocratic to me in some ways that if the American people continue to say, yes, we want that person, and there's an election every four years that we respect the result of, it seems a little bit undemocratic to me that we would be limited as as American people. I think you're right. That's Jillian Metzger again. I mean, I, look, a president only stays on repeatedly if the president is reelected, right? So I think there is a, a, a strong democratic argument of a president who's able to get reelected and able to generate popular support. Um, the democratic answer would be to let the people elect that president. On the other hand, Jillian says the presidency these days is so powerful that once a president gets in office, they can bully out the competition. They have access to all these resources, a giant megaphone. I think we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of factors that sort of limit the extent to which the result of our presidential elections are reflections of uh, popular will, pure and simple. So, yeah, the 22nd Amendment might be undemocratic. It does tie our hands. But at the same time, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, take as an analogy the story of Ulysses. In that story, Ulysses and his men have to sail past the sirens. And sirens sing these beautiful songs that lure sailors to their deaths. So Ulysses knows he's not going to be able to resist the song, so he tells his men... 
Whatever my mouth speaks, whatever orders I may give, do not obey them. Tie me up. I'm not going to be able to resist. Just tie me up. And then we'll go past the sirens because I can't trust myself in the moment to make the right decision. Perhaps the 22nd Amendment is a little like that rope that Ulysses uses to bind his hands so he doesn't waver. Um, I mean, I think in another way, it's a prophylactic measure, right? Um, There will be times when it will cost us a good present we might want to keep. But it's a prophylactic measure to not let ourselves really entertain those thoughts, um, go down that road. It's one small way we've chosen to protect ourselves from that siren song, those kingly winds. That sometimes blow. That was producer Kelly Prime with liner notes for the 22nd Amendment. And on the album covering the 22nd is a Brooklyn band called Pavo Pavo. They wrote a sort of crooning indie pop ballad from the perspective of a departing president. Here's an excerpt. Perfect is produced by me, Jad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Julia Longoria, Kelly Prime, Sarah Kari, and Alex Overington, with help from Ellie Mistal, Michelle Harris, and David Gable. Thanks to Nora Keller for her help making our record 27, the most perfect album. And thank you to Jeffrey Wright for reading the amendments. You can listen to all the songs and read short and funny essays about the amendments at themostperfectalbum.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.